from like up the stairs and he's like, Pretty crazy, right? I think so. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. I think I've read that. We were like, oh well the next time we come, we're gonna come with Emma and she's gonna be like four, you know, and she's gonna want to see all the time. Because of our really low. So we're at the wrong airport. Like what do you do when you're at the wrong airport? You know when it takes the picture at the top? There's this person's hand right in front of my face and I don't have any sense and I was like, what are you doing? You're freaking out. Thank you though. One of the kind of amazing things that I feel like I've experienced that I think is like a spiritual thing or God thing is like the bridge got shut down because there was like this massive oil tanker that like caught on fire. We were praying and, and all of a sudden like the clouds like part. Like I mean this is like weird. It was like the clouds part and we could see base camp. As a young man, Lawrence felt called into the ministry. So he threw himself into academics, everything academic. And the more he studied, the more he confirmed that he had a teaching gift. But that gift would not come from behind a podium or behind a lectern. It would come in a classroom, a university classroom to be specific. So he did all the, the, the studies and got all of the degrees needed. And he took a job at a small college in Maine. Things were going extreme, extremely well for him. That is until the Civil War broke out. When the Civil War broke out, he felt that same tug that had called him to be a professor. And this time, the tug was to be an officer in the Union Army. The tug was based on two things. First of all, his internal operating system, his wiring was all about serving. He wanted to serve his country. The second part, though, was about his faith. He felt to the core of his being that slavery was antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he appealed to the governor of Maine and was given a commission in the Union Army. Within a year, his title would be Colonel Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, commander of Maine's 20th Regiment, also known as the 20th Maine. Now, the 20th Maine was a ragtag group of individuals. There were deserters from several battles where they just ran away. And then they also had farmers and shopkeepers. They were not battle experienced. So Colonel Chamberlain and his sergeant major formed this unit, and they got him ready for combat. They went through a few skirmishes, but on July 2nd, 1863, they would be put to, to test. The place was Gettysburg. The chunk of terrain that they owned was a place called Little Round Top. It was high ground on the Gettysburg battlefield, and his orders were to hold it at all costs. He saw the Confederate military advancing, and when the Confederate army was advancing, he knew he was going to get overrun, so he had to make a split decision. He told his men, fix bayonets, and they charged down the hill and into the Confederate lines. The result is that it shocked the Confederate army, and it became a turning point in the battle for the Union army, which won that battle. He would receive, for his actions that day, the Congressional Medal of Honor. He'd serve through the ranks. He'd retire at the rank of Major General. He'd get out of the military and become the governor of Maine. So we got a pretty successful story, right? Well, here's the thing. He was wounded six times in combat, twice with near-fatal wounds. And those two near-fatal wounds, they would haunt him for the rest of his life. There would be seasons of his life where he was doing okay, and then seasons of his life when he was a near-invalid. 
At the end of his life, he would write his memoirs, and he would say that he followed his call, he did his duty, no matter how difficult it was. Think about that thing called calling. It's that place where your passion, your talent, and your abilities, and God's will collide like that. There is probably no greater satisfaction in life than walking and calling. But understand this is that when God calls you to something, there's going to be difficulty. If you get anything at all out of today's teaching, understand this to the fiber of your being. A calling comes at a high price. A calling comes at a high price. You see, we want this purpose-driven life, but so often we want to detach the purpose-driven God And that driven God will sometimes drive us purposely, purposely into the valley of the shadow of death to strip us of our pride, to develop our character, and to forge our faith to be men and women of God. And those are tough places to go. The past couple of days, Thursday and Friday, we had the Global Leadership Summit here, and and over a fourth of our church attended the, the GLS. We're glad you did. And I guarantee you that many of you who attended feel that same tug that Joshua Chamberlain and so many other people have felt in their lives, that thing called calling. So here's what I want to do today. My hope is today, for all of us here, whether you attended the GLS or not, all of us here want to be walking and calling. So my hope is, is that this teaching today will encourage you. My hope is that it will give you some practical things to discern any big decision in your life, but also... I want today's teaching to serve as a warning. When you walk in calling, it's a dangerous thing. A calling comes at a high price. Well, God's got a lot to say about that as we hit week 11 of our summer series called Stories Worth Telling. It's in this series in which we're delving into about 12 or 13 or so characters in the Bible. Characters in the Bible who resemble stories like ours. Stories of highs and lows and wins and losses. Stories in which God inserts himself into their lives. He writes himself into their stories. And when he does that, they become extraordinary stories because we all know that extraordinary stories are the only stories worth telling. This week and next week, I get the honor and privilege to preach on, on one of my favorite characters in the Bible. His name is Elijah. He's one of the toughest prophets out of the Old Testament. And his story's told over multiple places in the Bible where we're gonna be hanging out today and next week is in one chapter and and one book only. 1 Kings chapter 17. This week we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. Next week we're going to look at verses 8 through 24. And we're going to look at this thing called calling. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings 17 and let me set the scene for what's going on. You remember a few weeks ago I taught on this guy named Solomon and I talked about the first kings of Israel. You got to go back about 3,000 years ago. The first king is a guy named Saul. Saul lives for about, or reigns for about 40 years. At the end of his reign, he dies, and David takes over. You know, David and Goliath. So David takes over. He goes for 40 years. Towards the end of his reign, he names his son Solomon to be the next king. Solomon takes over, and he leads for 40 years. But his reign can be summarized by one word, jacked upness. It was an ugly, ugly time. And God kept the kingdom together only for one reason. He had promised David that he would do that for his son Solomon. So Solomon dies off, and he got 12 tribes of Israel. Ten tribes split to be the northern kingdom. They're also known as Israel. Two tribes stay in the south, Judah and Benjamin. They're known as Judah. Judah is the tribe from which the seed of Jesus would come. So you've got 
10 tribes in the north and the northern kingdom over the next couple hundred years. They're led by 19 different kings. Every single one of those kings is evil. In the southern kingdom, Judah, for the next couple hundred of years, they're led by 17 kings. Eight of them are good, nine of them are evil. So you see, overall, with all of God's people, most of the leaders, the majority of the leaders are evil. So God calls on this guy, Elijah, to stand in the face of one king and in one kingdom in particular. The, the king's name is Ahab, the Arab. He's the sheik of the burning sand. It's biblical. Ahab is married to the most evil woman in all of Scripture. Her name is Jezebel. Now, here's the thing about Jezebel. She's the dominant partner in the relationship, and she convinces Ahab to start a systematic worship of two little G gods, Baal and Asherah. And what she does is she gets 400 Asherah prophets and 400 Baal, or 450 Baal prophets. And she gets the government salaries and pays them a government salary to purposely lead them away from God's people. God's a little upset about that. So our story picks up about 800 years-ish before Jesus. God calls on this man, Elijah, to stand in the face of King Ahab. Okay, here we go. Let's see who Elijah is. We're going to go with 1 Kings 17, verse 1. Remember, a calling comes at a high price. You guys ready? All right, here we go. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now, as I always point out, names in the Old Testament have meaning. The name Elijah is a combination of two words or names for God. Elohim and Jehovah. If you would translate it into English, it's something like, the Lord is my God, or my God is Jehovah. He comes from a rough and tough region. He's Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe. Tishbe is in this place called Gilead. Gilead has people who are known to be in-your-face people, direct and in-your-face people. I picture Gilead like a modern-day Bronx, New York, on a really bad day when, when it's hot, there's high humidity, the, the electricity's out, there's no air conditioning, there's really bad traffic. You're walking down the street, and you say hi to someone. He's like, you talking to me? Are you talking to me? You, I, I, why I ought to get out of here? These are the people from Gilead. So Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe is given a mission. He's supposed to stand in front of King Ahab, who worships the little g-god of rain. And says, so there ain't going to be no more rain. There is no more rain until I say so or until my God says so. God calls Elijah to stand in the gap, to point people to, to, to God. He did that 3,000 years ago, and he does it today. God's calling for a few good Elijahs, available and obedient men and women of God, who can stand in the gap at their businesses, in their schools, on their sports teams, in their neighborhoods, in their families, and point people to God. So he calls out Elijah, and Elijah gives this life-threatening announcement. Let's keep going and see what happens, verses 2 and 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, God tells him, leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan. And I look at this, I'm like, what the heck? I mean, Elijah has just thrown down with Ahab, and God says, okay, now I'm going to go send you off. I've got to protect you, train you, and equip you. You're going to go hide for a while. And that had to sting. It really had to sting for Elijah, because as I said, he just stood in front of the guy, the most evil king in the region. Success, big win for Elijah. And he had to feel that sting of rejection because God says, nope, you're not ready. I need you to go off somewhere. 
Have you ever felt that sting? You know, you're in your company, things are going well, and a position opens up in your organization. It's a branch manager position, and you've, you know you can nail this. You can do great at this job. It will be a promotion, a pay raise. You know that you're the guy or gal for the job, so you put your name in the hat. And you know all the other people who put their names in the hat, and they're clowns. You know you've got this. And God says, no. You don't get it. It makes no sense. I hate this saying that life's rejections are God's protections. I really do. You know, side note, if you ever have someone in your family or a loved one or a friend who gets rejected like that, the first thing out of your mouth should not be, oh, well, you know, as they say, life's rejections are God's protections. You're going to get throat punched. I guarantee you. So... So my, 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 the, the thing about life's rejections or God, God's protections, that's what happens to Elijah. God is protecting him, he's training him, and equip him. He says no and sends him to his own personal careth. And he does it for good reason. Elijah needed to be equipped. He was called and needed to be equipped, and that's so true for us. For those of us who feel that calling in life, it's a truth we got to remember. God often calls you before he equips you. God often calls you before he equips you. So you went to the GLS and you got that God tug on your heart. Understand that if you've been called, he will equip you to do what he's called you to do. Tony Evans once said these words. He said that God doesn't always call the equipped. He always equips the called. Elijah was a doer. He was a doer, and he needed to be equipped. So God would send him to this place called Kareth. Now remember, names mean a lot in the Old Testament. Kareth means in Hebrew to, to cut down or to cut off. So God would take Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe. Elijah, the Lord is my God. Elijah, my God is Jehovah. And take him to a place where it would just be Elijah and God and nature. Let's go back to verses 2 and 3, because I want to pull apart that protect, train, and equip when it comes to calling. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. God told him, God said, leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. And, and what, Ahab, or what Elijah probably didn't understand is that God was protecting him from King Ahab. You see, when we get rejection in our lives, when that thing that we want to have happen doesn't happen, we can get very upset about that. We can actually curse God so often when these things happen, but we've got to understand that God's got a vantage point. God is not bound by time, so he knows the past, present, and future, and he's got this vantage point, and we have to trust in him. So God's protecting him. But what about the equipping piece and the training piece? Elijah had what we all have. It's called an internal operating system. It's the way we operate. It's, it's our values. It's our DNA. It's our past. It's the past of our grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents. It's the experiences in our life, the mistakes we've made. It's our work ethic, our values. And God needed to speak into that internal operating system that Elijah had because my guess is that Elijah was adding God to an already full spirit. He was a doer. He was a driven man. How many of you here consider yourself driven? You know, your goal setters? Yeah, task organizers. Man, let me lead a team. Let's kick down some doors. Let's go. Let's do this. Being driven is a great thing. But here's the problem. When we crowd our souls with too much drivenness, 
When we demand performance and perfections, perfection from ourselves, what we can also do is demand that performance and perfection from our teams we lead, from those around us. And the result is that we go to war within ourselves. And the end result of that is bitterness, loneliness, anxiety, and stress. The result's burnout. So Elijah needed this place for transformation. He needed God to transform him from the inside out, and that's what God wanted to do with him. It's what he wants to do with you and I. God's longing is to transform you from the inside out. God's longing is to transform you from the inside out. If you are driven in an unhealthy way, you're going to crowd out God, and the result will be disastrous. So from 1997 to early 2000s, before 9-11, I was stationed at the Pentagon, and it was three and a half years of the worst years of my life because it was just so difficult. 12 to 15 hour days, a whole lot of nights I spent the night at the Pentagon because we had so much work. And I remember one morning, I'm coming into the Pentagon. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. I was a punk major back then. I was working for these colonels. Colonel is, is one step below general. So I'm working for these colonels, and I run into them as I'm coming into the Pentagon at 3 o'clock in the morning. I looked at them, and they were in their mid-40s, but they looked like they were in their mid-70s. They all had unhealthy operating systems. They had gone from assignment to assignment to assignment at the Pentagon, and they did nothing to check that doer inside of them. They had too much drivenness. They would do things in their own strength. Their lives were train wrecks. God needed to to transform them from the inside out. And that's what he wanted to do with Elijah. Elijah would do ministry in his own strength. And that's why God needed to take him to this brook called Kareth. He needed to pull him to a place of solitude and get him out of the spotlight. Okay, let's keep on going. Verse 4. God said, you will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. Kareth is in the middle of nowhere, and God says, listen, I called you. I'm going to take care of you. And this is so important when you feel that tug to go into a calling, whatever that calling may be. God's direction always includes God's provision. God's direction, God's calling will always include God's provision. Bishop T.D. Jakes on Thursday at the summit said these words. He said, if God has given you the vision, he'll give you the provision. So God leads Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe down to the Kareth Brook. And it's going to be a tough time. But there's a pattern that we see here. God directs, we respond, and then God provides. He'd provide for him spiritually. He'd speak into that overcrowded soul over the next as probably longer than a year at this place. And he'd provide for him physically with the raven catering service. Let's, keep, let's look at his response, verse 5. Elijah responds this way. So he did what the Lord had told him. Let me say that again. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. Elijah did what the Lord had told him. In short, he obeyed. And what we sometimes fail to remember is that Elijah had two open doors in this. One open door was God in his face saying, hey, I need you to go this way. But he had another open door, and it was his free will. God never takes our free will away from us. And Elijah could have said, hey, Yahweh, listen, things are going great for me. Have you seen the northern kingdom? It's jacked up. Deal with those people. Wait a second. I heard there's a bunch of bad stuff going on in the southern kingdom. You take care of that. I'm I'm lean and mean, ready to fight in between. Send me in, coach. I'm ready to play. I'm going the other way. And he'd go through the open door, another open door. 
Sounds a lot like a guy named Jonah. Jonah was this prophet whom God said, you need to go to Nineveh. I need you to preach to the Ninevites. Tell them about me. Tell them to repent and come to me. And Jonah says, you know what, God? I, I appreciate your interest in my life and those Ninevites, but I'm going to go through this other open door. I'll, I'm going to this place um, and, and just hang out in Tarshish on the beach. We'll have a few drinks. Everything will be good. And we know what happens to Jonah. He ends up smelling like fish food for the next several days. My point is this. When you're discerning a calling, when you're discerning going into a new job, when you're discerning a huge financial decision, understand that an open door is not always God's door. An open door is not always God's door. So how do we, how do we make those decisions? How do we d- discern? How do we have something, a tool we can use to help us make good godly decisions so that we're walking in God's will? Let's put Elijah on the side. I want to give you four ways, four ways, four things you can do when you come up to a time in your life when you have to make a difficult decision or a big decision and you've got time to make that decision. I, I want to give you four ways that you can use for things you can use to help you make a decision to be in God's will. I wish they were mine. I stole them from Henry Blackaby. I would be a millionaire if I made these up, but I didn't. They're not in your link, so we got to go old school. You got to write them down. You guys ready? Okay, four ways. Whenever I come up to something where I've got a big decision in my life, the first thing I do is pray. Prayer is the first one. Prayer. You soak it in prayer. We say, well, I guess we've done everything. I guess we should just pray. No, prayer is first, and you soak it in prayer the whole time you're trying to make that decision. So prayer is number one. Second thing, circumstances. You need to look at your circumstances in your life. You need to to be able to lay it all out to see everything that's going on in your life, all the different factors that are happening in your life. And you've got to be wary of circumstances because you think a circumstance will give you an open door. And you're saying, well, this is the door i got to go through. And you've got this emotion in your heart, and this emotion in your heart's pulling you towards the door, but your heart can lie to you. And that's why you need the third thing. Godly men and women in your life. Christ-following men and women. And the reason why I say Christ-following men and women, God will speak through anybody. But the great thing about Christ-following men and women, especially spiritually mature ones, they're walking with God. They're walking with the Holy Spirit, and they can help you discern the situation. They can help you look at those circumstances. They can join you as you pray. So you got prayer, circumstances, godly men and women, and then the fourth thing is Scripture because they can help you interpret Scripture. Scripture is very important. God's Word is a lamp to our feet. And because His Word is a lamp to our feet, He guides us and gives us principles to make wise decisions. And here's the thing that's cool about this. When all four of those things are firing together and you got an open door, go through it. But here's the thing. If only one or two or three of those are firing and, one, and, and some of those are missing, press pause unless you have to make a decision in the heat of the moment. And if you have all four of those things firing together and you got an open door and sometimes God will give you another open door and all four of those things are firing together, that's amazing. It's like God saying, take the red pill or the blue pill. I'm going to bless you no matter what. But understand, if it's an issue of calling, expect some pain because a calling comes at a high price. When you know, you go. So God never takes away free will, and and, and so Elijah did what the Lord had told him. God directs, we respond, God provides. All right, let's keep on going. Look what happens next, verse 6. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. 
So God was true to his word. He, he brought this raven catering service twice a day. And what that means is, is that our man Elijah didn't get fat living off the land. Actually, he had to have great faith to have God's provision show up. It's so true for us when God calls you to something. Don't expect it to be overflowing at first. It takes time. It takes time. Most of the time, you're going to be scraping by, but if you're walking and calling, he will take care of you. Elijah goes off most likely for more than a year at the brook called Kareth. It's this year in which he get time of reflection to learn to be content with what he had. It would be a year out of the spotlight, a year of solitude, and a year of, of have to, having to show faith to get his food. You see, we don't see Elijah going out and living off the fat of the land. No, God's ravens who are unclean to a Jewish man would bring clean food to this Jewish man, and he would have to trust that God would cover all of that and take care of that. It took faith. Folks, God requires great faith so that you can receive his provision. He does. He requires great faith so you can receive his provision. Don't believe me? Let me talk about a guy named Tom. Tom was born in 1866 in the woods of Kentucky, in a log cabin in Kentucky. At the age of 27, he received Jesus as his Savior and Lord. At the age of 36, he had discerned his calling. His calling was to be a pastor in a church. So he's ready to go. He's going to be a pastor in a church, and he gets really, really sick to the point that he will never be able to pastor a church. So he scrapes by over the years by being an insurance salesman. He dies at the age of 93, basically penniless. Nobody really knows who he is. But here's the cool thing about Tom. God used the crucible of bad health to show Tom that he had a gift, a gift in ministry, but the gift was penmanship. He'd end up writing 1,200 different poems. And in 1925, this incredible poem that became a hymn written by Tom Chisholm called Great is Thy Faithfulness began ministering to people around the world. 90-plus years later, 90-plus years later, millions upon millions of people have been pastored by Tom Chisholm through this incredible hymn. God was faithful to Tom, he was faithful to Elijah, and he will be faithful to you. Let's keep on going. Verse 7, God does something that probably rocked Elijah to the core. Do not miss the point of this, because this is very, very important. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Let me read that again. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Some of your translations say, after a while, the brook dried up. God had kept that brook going during a drought, but there was only so far that Elijah could go being fed every day by the ravens. God needed to move him to a different area to, to train him and equip him even more. And so God dried up the brook. And you look at that and say, what the heck? This guy's been living on the fat of the, off the fat of the land for over a year. But here's the thing that's interesting about that. I always look at God as an incredible coach, like an Olympic-level coach. And, and his star athletes are us, Christ followers. And what a good coach does to his athletes or her athletes, the coach takes them through workouts over and over and over again, purposely taking them through workouts so that they get strong, so they can run that race and finish that weight race and win the prize. God did that to Elijah, and he'll do that to you. Many of you have been there. 
I know you've been there. You've had that, that business. That business is going well. Your business is doing really well. And then all of a sudden, your competitor moves in from across the street. And she starts taking all of your business. In fact, she starts an online business that undercuts everything you're doing. And pretty soon, people start going over there. And after a while, the brook dried up. Or maybe you had a great boss. You guys are like this, man. You guys, you're tight. You and she are best buddies, and things are going well. You're accomplishing tasks. And she gets transferred to another branch or office. And you, the, the new boss comes in, and you guys don't see eye to eye on anything. And after a couple weeks, he says, hey, can, can you come into my office tomorrow morning at 9? And you show up, and there's the HR rep, Gulp. And he says, it's been real and fun. Here's your severance package. Uh, get your stuff. You need to be out of here within 30 minutes. You go through the severance package. You go through your 401K. And after a while, the brook dried up. Folks, when we're walking and calling, we've got to understand this, that dried up brooks point to a bigger plan. Bride, dried up brooks often point to a bigger plan. Now, let me put a caveat on that. If you're doing something immoral or unethical and you dry up that brook on your own, that's on you. Understand, too, that if you're walking and calling, if there is a God and there is, then there is a Satan, and he has demonic forces. There is spiritual combat that you will deal with as you walk in calling as a Christ-following woman or man. But understand this, too, that sometimes, yes, sometimes, God dries up that brook so his bigger plan can emerge. It happened to me. Back in 2004 or so, I got stationed at West Point. I was teaching at the university there and loved it. It was a great assignment for two years. I taught at West Point, and during that time, God had placed it on my heart that, that, that I should be a pastor. So over the next couple of years, Linda and I would use those four things, prayer, circumstances, godly men and women, and scripture to verify that that's what he wanted us to do. 2006-ish, we're back in Korea for our last assignment, our next assignment. We didn't know it would be our last. And it's like, yes, this is what we got to do. So I was going to seminary online. I was leading an incredible youth group, 300 kids, 30 volunteers. Things were going extremely well. Put in my retirement paperwork. And 2009, I retired. August of 2009, I retired from the Army. Actually, it's, I retired one week from this coming Friday in 2009. And so I was all fired up. You know, I can do all things through Kip who strengthens me. I'm Colonel Kip McCormick. I'm Pastor Kip McCormick. I do everything in my strength. I know the plans I have for Kip. And so what I did was put my name out there for some, some jobs. And there was a job that was open in Bend, Oregon. We were living in Korea. I couldn't fly over to do the interview. We, we did those four things, looked at those four things when we discerned if that was a place I should go. And only two of those four were flapping and two of those four were firing. But I went ahead and made the decision. It was an open door. I had other open doors. And so we stepped into that. It was a great church. The people were amazing. But it wasn't the right fit. And one year to the day, I resigned from the church. And it wasn't for an ethical failure or a moral failure. It was just, it was not the right fit. Uh, my wife's from Bellingham. We owned a house up here in Ferndale. We didn't own the house. The bank owns the house, but our name's on the fine print. We write that check every month. And so we decided to come up here because I'm Colonel retired Kip McCormick. I'm Pastor Kip McCormick. I can do all things through Kip who strengthens me. 
And we get up here, I don't have a job. And I'm like, no, I'm going to get a job. It's too easy. I got this. Now, here's what's interesting. We did those four things when I resigned, and they were, they were firing. We needed, to, I, we needed to leave there and come up here. And all of a sudden, the brook dried up. I started sending resumes out to different churches. Sent a resume to Cornwall Church. I'm thinking, man, big church, cool ministry, nothing. Nada. Crickets. Didn't hear anything back from Cornwall Church. But I'm not bitter. So I'm going, Christ the King. Christ the King back in 2010. You guys know it. They had, there was a Christ the King on every corner. It was just like Starbucks. You could not swing a dead cat without hitting a Christ the King. So I'm like, they're going to need a pastor. So I send Grant and company my, 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 uh, my resume. Crickets. Nothing. I couldn't get anything for 24 months. I was doing some speaking gigs here and there, but it wasn't paying the bills. And I had a, a good military pension, but it couldn't cover everything. And here's what's interesting about that. During that time, God convicted me that, imagine this, I got a pride problem and that I was going to be doing things in my own strength. So I swallowed my pride, and a couple months later, we started attending here at Cornwall Church. And I started volunteering in ministries and doing some stuff. It was amazing. We fell in love with this church. And what was interesting about it was uh, the more we were here, the more God convicted me of my pride. You see, I was about big titles, big ministry, doing big things, because I'm Colonel Retired Kip McCormick, Pastor Kip McCormick. I can do anything and everything through Kip who strengthens me. And God ripped that away. And I'm so glad he did. Something he showed me during that time that's so important for all of us is this truth. And this truth is that sometimes God doesn't want your business your ministry, to grow larger. He wants your faith to grow deeper. Think about that. Sometimes God doesn't want your business, your ministry, your family, your finances, your calling. He doesn't want it to grow bigger. He wants your faith to grow deeper. I had a faith issue that God would have to be chiseling on. And the beautiful thing about it is, after about a year of being here, I get this crazy pastor with a ponytail calling me up. He says, man, I hear you're doing some, some cool ministry here at Cornwall. I want to meet for coffee. Let's talk about it. Next scene, a few months after that, we're opening up Cornwall Skagit in Mount Vernon, and Ishmael here gets to be the campus pastor. How cool is that? And we've fallen in love with this church. That was more than six and a half years ago. And the beautiful thing is that God had to dry up a brook for us to figure that out. Dried up brooks Dried up brooks point to a bigger plan. God does his best work, folks, when the brook dries up. But here's the deal. We've got to understand this, that, that, that the, the God who gives water can also take that water away. And when he takes the water away, it doesn't necessarily mean he's upset with us. Don't believe me? Let's talk about a guy named Jesus. Go back about 2,000 plus years ago. Jesus has a three plus year earthly ministry. It starts when Jesus is coming down, he's 30 years old, coming down to the Jordan River. He sees John the baptizer dunking people. John's dunking people. Jesus says, John, you need to baptize me. John says, no way. Jesus says, Yahweh. So, so John grabs him. He dunks him. He pulls him up out of the water. The Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. And Jesus hears these incredible words. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And then immediately, God, God, leads Jesus into the desert where he's going to be tested and tested and tested again. Do you see the, the, the pattern here? God's love. 
God's affirmation, God's confirmation, God's calling, God's plan, and then bam, welcome to the desert. So Jesus has a very difficult ministry. And at the end of Jesus' ministry, he has maybe 120, 150 people. He doesn't have a megachurch, and this is Jesus. And what's interesting about it is Jesus takes his three best friends, Peter, James, and John, and they go up on this mountain, and God just shows Peter, James, and John the amazingness of Jesus. They get a glimpse of his glory. And as they're looking at Jesus, Jesus is getting ministered to. He's getting encouraged by two dudes. One guy is Moses. Guess who the other guy is? Yeah, Elijah. That's for another sermon at another time. And they're encouraging Jesus. He got the Shekinah glory there. It's amazing. And God says these words for his disciples to hear. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And then a couple days later, Jesus is in this place called Jerusalem. A couple days later, Jesus is on his knees in this garden called Gethsemane. And as he's on his knees and he's in the worst, worst time he could ever imagine, he's sweating drops of blood as the wrath of mankind is opened up to him. He knows what's coming, and he says, Father, take this cup of suffering from me. But it's not my will, but your will be done. God's love, God's affirmation, this is my son. God's confirmation, with whom I'm well pleased. God's calling, God's plan. Welcome to the cross. You see, if God would do that to his own son, don't you think that sometimes, his own son whom he loved, don't you think that sometimes, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes he would dry up those brooks in our lives? And when he dries up those brooks in our lives, it doesn't necessarily mean he is displeased with us. It allows his bigger plan to emerge. So I'm looking at this story and I pop up to the 30,000-foot view, and one of the things I saw in this that I hadn't caught ever when I was reading it before was when Jesus is in Gethsemane, he had an open door. He had two open doors, like Elijah. God never took away Jesus' free will. When, when he gets arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he tells everybody, listen, guys, why are you coming at me with clubs and swords? You know that I can just say a word, and 12 legions of angels are going to come down and sweep me out of here. But... I'm going to the cross, and thank you, Jesus, that he did. Because here's the beauty about that. Because Jesus goes to the cross, he takes up on our sin and the sin of all mankind, past, present, and future. He shows us what true sacrificial and unconditional love is. He goes to the ground, he's buried, he's, he's, he's resurrected, and then he ascends at the right hand of the Father, and he gives us this promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you, especially when the brook runs dry. And when he looks at us, ah, oh, is what I love about this story. He looks at us and he says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. As he looks at you, this is my daughter with whom I'm well pleased. As he looks at you, and I will never leave you nor forsake you. Even if you jack it up, I've got you. And I will bring blessings out of this, will you just trust me? And he calls us. We get the honor to walk in calling. And there's no greater satisfaction than to have God's will here and us being right in the center of it. But understand, a calling comes at a high price. Well, I always want to leave you with a challenge. 
And here's your challenge this week. It's a challenge for a lifetime. And it's a challenge for when you go through times when the brook dries up. Think about the most horrific thing you could go through, and I want you to be able to say these three things as you consider your perspective. Because that's your challenge. Consider your perspective. Your perspective is not what you see, but how you perceive what you see. And as you go through the valley of the shadow of death, whatever the thing may be, the difficulty you may have in life, first thing, I want you to understand and say to yourself, God is good. God is good. God is good. He is a good, good father. Second thing, I want you to understand that God is in control. God is in control. Nothing happens in your life that has not passed through the nail-pierced hands of Jesus. He is sovereign. He doesn't cause evil, but he allows certain things in our lives for our own good. And he also steps in when life happens and the world happens. So God is good. God is in control. Nothing catches him by surprise. And then last but not least, God wants what's best for me. God wants what's best for me. God wants what's best for me. He is a good, good father. Say these things with me. God is good. God is in control. God wants what's best for me. And folks, you decide that on the front end. If you haven't decided that today, decide it today because you're going to go through times when the brook dries up. And understand this, if you're walking in calling, a calling comes at a very, very high price. Okay, I'm excited about next week. We're going to continue this story next week, verses 8 through 24. Next week, we're going to talk about how God does some of his best work when you're at the end of your rope. We're going to talk about life's crucibles. All right, uh, Skagit, I'm going to turn you over to Pastor Brian. Thank you for being part of our church family. Boca Raton, those of you joining us online, thank you so much for joining us this week.